Well, this morning we will be in the Gospel of Luke. We will be looking at uh, chapter 18, verses 15 through 30. And our passage can be found on page 877 in the Pew Bible. Oops. There we go. So Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 30. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he became he become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See? We've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So 100 years ago, the idea of uh, running ads that would target uh, children with, with products was pretty much unthinkable. Why would you aim, spend money and resources and aim your, uh, your advertisements at people who don't have jobs, at people who don't have money? It wasn't until roughly the 60s or 70s uh, um, that, uh, that all of a sudden they discovered that if you aim, if you can get teenagers especially, but then also the children uh, to, to, uh, uh, to want the product, guess what they'll do? They'll nag their parents to buy it, right? They will get access to the funds that their parents have. And then the floodgates were opened, right? And, and so it, it, children became a surprisingly valuable resource when it came to selling your products. Our text this morning begins a, it has, has a similar surprise when it comes to the value of children. But, but in, in particular, it has to do with teaching us about uh, who gets to enter into the kingdom of God. To whom does the kingdom belong? How might one enter it? 
Now, if we were left to our own devices, we certainly would come up with a very noble list of those who would uh, be able to enter into the kingdom of God, a list uh, manicured uh, uh, specifically that would allow you know, us to get in, but, um, uh, but, but a noble list nonetheless. But Jesus surprises even his own disciples with this contrast between helpless children, even infants, and a moral, religious, and wealthy man. Jesus reveals to us that the kingdom of God belongs to children precisely because the kingdom of God cannot be earned. We'll unpack both of those aspects this morning. So first, you can see that in verses 15 to 17, we see that the kingdom of God belongs to children. Uh, Jesus, uh, as we see here, receives little infants. People were bringing their babies to Jesus that he might touch them, that is that he might place his hands upon them and, and bless them. And Jesus' disciples rebuke the parents for doing this. Now, uh, we don't know exactly why the disciples rebuked uh, the parents for this. We don't need to assume that uh, the disciples just hate children. Uh, we, and we could probably supply a whole list of possible reasons, but uh, more than likely, they're simply very protective of Jesus and Jesus' time and and, and what he's doing. And, and we know that Jesus was overrun with people all the time. So perhaps they're just saying, hey, we're going to step in and, and, and do, do a you know, protective barrier and, and uh, you know, narrow the entryway uh, and make it harder. It's that way Jesus can have some rest or time to breathe. Uh, and, but, while, um, and, but, but Jesus takes this moment and, and, he, and he uses the, the, the acceptance and the blessing of these infants as a kind of metaphor for how one is to receive the kingdom of God. And, and, but, we, but while he is doing that, we shouldn't neglect the impact of the thing that he is actually doing with those babies. Because Jesus is not pretending when, he's, when he says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. He wasn't like, let them do it. I don't really mean I'm just doing this as an example. I don't want these children near me, right? He's, he's not doing that. He actually wants the children to come to him. He doesn't want them to be hindered. Uh, it, it, it Calvin noted on this, pas- on this passage, he made this very point that, um, uh, that, that this was not done for show. Jesus' prayers and blessings upon these, these babies are, are not being cast off into the wind. And the point here is simply that the the children of believers do not need to come to some age of accountability or age of understanding for Jesus to suddenly start caring about them or to have or to be willing to bless them. Jesus is glad to receive and to bless these infants before they can speak or declare anything about what they believe. And so here is a great comfort for Christian parents, namely that Jesus loves our children. He loves our babies. But Jesus uses these babies to show that God gives his kingdom to the helpless and the dependent. As as we're talking about children and thinking about children, uh, um, we should be careful because ancient attitudes about children are not the same that we have as we have today. Not that they hated kids back then, uh, but we tend to associate children with innocence 
happiness and things like that. And now that, those specific ideas are more kind of a modern sentimentality regarding children. Um, uh, but and, and so we can't, uh, we have to be careful not to just, I've read several commentaries that were going on about, well, children are like this and that, and they got a whole list of things. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily the ancient world's view of children. And so we don't need to wax eloquent about the inherent virtues of, uh, of, of children. It, it, but the meaning is fairly simple here. Children, particularly in this case infants, are a picture of total helplessness and dependence. And all the parents said, amen. Right? Uh, Because infants can't do anything for themselves. They can't feed themselves. They can't change their own diapers. They can't do nothing. Right? Children children even generally had no social status in society in that time. Uh, And children are given over to uh, what one commentator called a wholehearted trust in the one who holds them because they don't have any other choice. Right? And so Jesus says that the only way to get in the kingdom of God is like that, is to receive it, is to receive it like an infant. And so here we, we are speaking about the receiving the right to enter into the kingdom of God, receiving one's citizenship in the kingdom. And so we would be right to connect this teaching here to Jesus, Jesus teaching Nicodemus in John 3. That one must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. Something radically different must happen to us that we can't do for ourselves. Now we need to bear this picture in mind that the, the right recipient of the kingdom of God is the one who receives it like a helpless and dependent infant baby. Uh, because this leads us uh, very quickly into our second point, which is that the kingdom of God thus cannot be earned. Verses 18 through 30. Jesus is, uh, you know, perhaps interrupted by, by a, a ruler, basically kind of a young noble, a young up-and-comer, uh, and uh, who he asks what he has to do in order to inherit eternal life. That is the, the kingdom of God. That's what he means. Uh, and, and Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom of God comes not by good men doing good things. The kingdom of God comes not by good men doing good things. This is what verses 18 to 25 are all about with this young ruler. Jesus won't even let this ruler get away with, uh, with routine politeness because uh, he calls him good teacher. And he says, well, what do you mean by good? Right? Now, he's not doing that, uh, he's not doing that thing where, you, uh, where, where, where you, somebody asks you, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing pretty good. And they go, well, what good are you doing? And you're like, ugh. ugh. All right. Um, you're like, I'm doing well, thank you. Now I don't want to talk to you anymore. All right, so, um, uh, and, and so Jesus isn't playing, you know, you know the grammar Nazi here. Uh, what, he, what he is doing, though, is he's actually, uh, he, he's pressing uh, the, the ruler, inviting him in to think about the meaning of his words more carefully because this ruler is all caught up on being good, right? You're the good teacher. I'm a good guy. We're all good. We're good, 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 good. And he's like, okay, well, who is really good except God alone? And so maybe he's introducing the idea that the ruler maybe is not as good as he thinks he is already. He's kind of undermining that before they even get the conversation. But it's also, it, we need to think about our words carefully. It's like, it, it's like how we use the word awesome, right? Awesome, you know, the, the movie was awesome. Lunch was awesome. That, that deal I got on my, on my shoes on, on Amazon was awesome. It's like, really? Did, did it really inspire awe in the divine? 
Really? Was, was lunch transcendent? You're like, it was good sushi, but it's not that good. All right, come on. Okay. The answer that Jesus gives to him is the standard rabbinical reply. Do the commandments. All right? And so he's like, well, you know, what must I do? Well, you know what to do. You know what you do. You've been doing it, right? So he quotes the seventh commandment, sixth, eighth, ninth, and fifth in that order. And so rabbis actually taught that it was capable to keep the law fully because, uh, because they, they had a more external view of, of the law. And, uh, and, um, and so it's not out of nowhere that the young man says, well, I, I've done all these since I youth. Cause it, cause, and, and, and we shouldn't doubt, like the Pharisee in the parable that we looked at last week, you know, we shouldn't doubt that this was a moral young man, that, that, that he did follow these things. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't steal from his neighbor. He didn't bear false witness against his neighbor, that he, he didn't do these things. And, and, and so, but Jesus here reveals in what he says to him that, uh, that this man has two problems. He has two problems. First, this man does not actually understand the requirements of what it truly means to fulfill the law of God. He doesn't understand that one can violate the commandments regarding adultery, theft, murder, false witness, and honoring one's parents. You can violate those merely in the attitudes of your heart, or else he would not make the claim that he made. Even the commandments he does fulfill, he does not do as he, he does not fulfill them as well as he thinks he does. And secondly, Jesus, in his response to this man, reveals the idolatry laden in this man's heart. Jesus tells this man that the only thing he lacks is to do one thing, sell everything he has. Distribute to the poor and follow me. Now, Jesus is not here giving a prescription for, for every wealthy Christian to give away all their possessions. Okay. We know this because we've read the rest of the New Testament. All right? Jesus doesn't say this to every wealthy person he runs into. And also in, in the book of Acts and in the letters, this is not what is said to all the wealthy people uh, that you run into. I mean, is it, uh, Lydia, who sponsored Paul, um, you know, she was a wealthy businesswoman, essentially. And so she, she had a lot of money. Paul never said, you got to give it all up and then come join, join me and my crew. Right? He, didn't, he didn't say that. So, um, so that means Jesus is doing something else here rather than just giving blank, you know, just uniform prescriptions. Jesus is revealing that while this man thinks that he keeps commandments 5 through 9, he's guilty of violating number 1. You cannot have two gods. You cannot serve God and mammon. Money. Jesus gently but painfully reveals this man, but he does so in his own terms by, by pointing to an external action that this man could take to show, and he does it to reveal the heart attitude that is in there. Dale Ralph Davison's commentary on this passage, he says, the whole encounter makes two matters clear. First, that one can be very religious or moral and not have eternal life. But secondly, one can be a person of solid outward morality and also of deep, hidden idolatry. Jesus clarifies in verse 25, it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. You almost imagine that old joke set up, 
You know, how difficult is it, right? It's so difficult, it'd be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That seems impossible and a little harsh, right? A little harsh. But why does Jesus say that? Well, because having great possessions can blind people to their need and their dependence. And today we must not dismiss this by simply classifying everyone as rich except for me. Who's the rich? Everyone who has more than I do, right? But, but even if we're not talking about the amount of possessions or the amount in our bank accounts, we also, one thing that I think is often neglected is the, you could call it a wealth of, uh, the wealth of diversions we have. That we have a deluge of entertainments and diversions that can blind us to our needs. What, uh, what pe- people can't handle the silence, so they fill it with music. Uh, they can't handle the silence. They can't handle the gap, uh, the gap and because they start thinking about things in their life. So just throw on Netflix. Throw on YouTube. Just going to throw on these things. And there's never a moment where I'm silent in my thoughts because that when I do, they start going to dark places and then that make me deeply uncomfortable and I don't want to deal with it. Okay? We, ha- we live in a society that, will, that, that allows you to never have to think once. Right? What we learn by the religious moral man here is that there is no amount of religious obedience that can merit entrance into the kingdom of God. Our works are far too riddled with imperfections, weaknesses, and just outright sin. However, while we do not come into the kingdom of God by being good men who do good things, can't earn it by being good, Neither do we, do we uh, enter the kingdom of God by being disciples who make great sacrifices. So verses 28 through 30, Peter kind of sees what's going on here, and he makes this observation, say, hey, you know, we actually kind of did the thing that you told the ruler to do. So, so we good, right? He's a little, look, it seems to be looking for a little assurance. Like, we did the thing, right? So, so we're in, right? And, uh, and, and now Peter's not exaggerating. He's not lying. Like, they left, right? The, the, the text says very plainly, they left everything and followed him. You know, have they not earned, merited entrance into the kingdom of God? And Jesus highlights that while the disciples, his own disciples, may be called upon to give up many things, even we know, even their very lives, God still does not owe them anything. For even the one who sacrifices now, Jesus said, will receive some manner, he's not specific, but some manner of rewards in this life and then even more in the kingdom of God. As others have said, you cannot outgive God. You cannot make God into your debtor. Simply put, We do not enter the kingdom of God by the value of our sacrifices that we make in this life. Now, I was thinking a lot about the kingdom of God, obviously, as I was thinking thinking this uh, text. And I'm a family of, I'm a father of young children. And you start thinking about kingdom, kingdom, and you think magic kingdom. You start thinking about, because I lived in Orlando for two years. And you think about, okay, the, the magic kingdom. 
And, and how much would it cost to get entrance into the magic kingdom? I went and looked up a website, okay, and confirmed why my family's never going to go. But, um, uh, but uh, according to one vacation planning website, a, se- a seven-night stay at, a, at, at one of their resorts uh, with six days of standard ticket prices uh, and uh, plus the service that lets you get on the ride faster, which everyone agrees is necessary, um, uh, and, uh, and, and meals, you're looking at, they estimated about $5,300, okay? Now, some people, they're saying that sounds like a lot. Some people are saying I spent way more than that when I went. Um, uh, but, but there's a lot of people who have to sacrifice to do that, right? You have to sacrifice. You've got to save money. You've got you to not go there. You've got to do this because we're, we're saving up the money to go do this, and we're sacrificing to get there. And so, and, and so you know, it, it, it costs entrance to get into the Magic Kingdom. It costs $5,300 for a week. How much is eternity in the kingdom of God worth? What value can we place on it? What dollar amount do we have to pay to get there? We can't even do it. There is no estimate that we can place on it. In fact, Jesus reveals it is impossible to buy our way in with good works or great sacrifices. So what do we do? Well, Jesus says it's impossible, but thankfully, God makes the impossible possible. Verses 26 to 27. In response to Jesus' declaration about how it's impossible for moral religious men uh, to get into the kingdom of God, and notice how they didn't go, oh yeah, those rich guys, yeah, they can't get in, but we can. Their response was, well, if they can't get in, how in the world can we get in? Their response is, well, who can be saved then? You have a moral religious guy who's obviously been blessed by God. If he can't get in, then ain't nobody getting in. How does this work? And Jesus responds, was impossible with man, it's possible with God. Where our obedience falls short, Jesus' obedience surpasses. Where our good works condemn, Jesus and his ministry redeems. And so we need to note there are three things in this passage that are intertwined. They're connected together, uh, which is, uh, which is the, the kingdom of God, eternal life, and salvation. You can't separate them. They're all intertwined together. The, the eternal life is to live in the kingdom of God. To be saved is to have eternal life. To be saved, then, is to enter into the kingdom of God. And so how shall we enter into the kingdom? How shall we be saved? In truth, the ruler was asking the wrong question from the beginning. He wanted to know from Jesus what, what he needed to do in order to earn his way into the kingdom. You know, he's already doing the basic stuff, but come on, Jesus, what, what's the next level stuff? I already got the basics down, but I've been doing those since I was a kid. But how do we, how do we go to the next level? Right? And there's no shortage of religions and cults that will tell you, I'll tell you how to get to the next level. And it usually involves a, uh, a cash transaction as well. So, but Christ shows us the, the, the true answer that we should be asking. How might I receive the kingdom of God as unworthy and helpless as I am? Even as an infant. 
He cannot do anything for himself. We must understand that if we want to enter the kingdom of God, we have to ask the one to whom the kingdom actually belongs, and that is Jesus Christ. It is he who grants us entrance into the kingdom of God by his gospel, and he does so by the merit of his righteousness, established unchangeably by his blood. And so there was, there was a popular uh, method of evangelism years ago. It's somewhat fallen out of favor, but, uh, but it still pops up. Uh, but, but it focused on evangelism efforts on the influencers of, of a particular group of people, whether it's a college, campus, or, or town. Or, and you would, go, you would try to aim your evangelistic efforts at people who had influence of, uh, over other people. Um, but what, what this meant in, in, in practical terms uh, was in, in the way I don't think the, maybe the original guy who put forward this method put it out. But in practice, it, it, it meant that Christians were, would go seek out the strong and the important and the beautiful and the popular. And if you weren't those things, then they had no time for you. They would ignore the weak and the unwanted. And don't get me wrong, even the popular and the beautiful and the strong need the gospel. Jesus makes that clear. But the kingdom of God is for those who will receive it as helpless and dependent little babies. This is not a humility exercise. It is because we are as helpless as infants when it comes to entering the kingdom of God. We cannot do it. Whether we are a Pharisee or a tax collector, an infant or a ruler, a moral religious person or a notorious sinner, the only way to inherit eternal life is by the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So I invite you today, along with me, to recognize our own helplessness and dependence absolutely upon the Lord and to lean upon the perfect sufficiency of Christ that we may together one day enter the kingdom of God in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Christ we have a sure and certain Savior who redeems the life of his people, who does what the, he does the impossible. He makes it so men and women, uh, at, at such as we are, can enter into the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, we give you praise and thanks for our Savior. We pray, Father, that we would abandon any kind of self-salvation project that the works that we do, we would not cease doing good works, but that we would do them with the knowledge that they are the, the, the grace-born fruit testifying to your mercy and your goodness at work in our lives, that we do not have anything eternally that we have merited because of our goodness and our strength of character, but that it is all comes from your merciful hand. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless your people this morning in this way, that we would, that we would know that we are receivers, inheritance of the kingdom of God, all by grace and mercy and all by faith in the name of Jesus. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand.